This episode is brought to you by Wise, the account that helps you manage your money all around the world. I lived overseas for many years, and one of the biggest bottlenecks to international living is money transfers. You want to withdraw money from an ATM to access funds from your American bank account, and you don't realize you're getting hit with a $10 charge every single time you do that. Yeah, that did happen to me. So if you're dining in dollars or want to do business in bot, what a Wise account does is let you send, spend, and receive money in different currencies. Wise is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. This goes from a night out at a tapas bar in Spain to buying a property in the Yucatan. So if you're a digital nomad in Bali or want to send money back to mom, it's simple. And this is all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. Wise works in over 160 countries, so your money's always at your fingertips. And over half of the transfers get their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this app. Join 16 million customers and learn how a Wise account can work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com unplugged. That's wise.com unplugged. One more time, wise.com unplugged. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the History Unplugged podcast, the unscripted show that celebrates unsung heroes, myth busts historical lies, and rediscovers the forgotten stories that changed our world. I'm your host, Scott Rank. History and alcohol really go hand in hand, and I've had a few guests who've come on the show and talked about things such as prohibition, the drinking habits of monks in medieval monasteries, the alcohol choices of presidents and which ones gave their best speeches while drunk, and how basically everyone was hammered throughout the Civil War. In today's episode, I have a returning guest, Michael Foley, who is a professor of patristics at Baylor University in Texas. The last time he was on, Michael was here to talk about his book, Drinking with the Saints, They looked at such stories as how chartreuse, an herbal liqueur, was created by two Carthusian monks and is still made by them, even though only two monks at a time know the recipe. And Frangelico liqueur was invented by a hermit monk during his time of solitude by experimenting with nuts, herbs, and berries he gathered. Today, we're here to talk about his book, Drinking with St. Nick, Christmas Cocktails for Sinners and Saints. We're going to look at how alcohol pairs with saints' legends and in the imagination of the Middle Ages, especially during Christmas time. We look at the historical Saint Nicholas, how he was, in fact, a 4th century bishop, and an examination of his remains revealed that he liked to get into fights with other people, and how his legend morphed into Santa Claus, what sort of drink goes with his feast day, and a literal entire advent calendar of cocktails that Michael came up with. So you learn about mixology, you learn about medieval history. What more could you ask for? Hope you enjoyed this discussion with Michael Foley. Michael, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, Scott. So I was inspired by our discussion last time, and one part that stuck out was the emphasis on herbal liqueur. I think uh, Benedictine and the abbreviation that appears on each bottle in Latin. It's something glory to God. Uh, you might know off the top of your head, but uh, what was that? That's right. D-O-M. Deo optimo maximo. To God, the best and the greatest. 
you might be ahead of the curve on this, or maybe I'm just noticing it more, but it seems in the craft cocktail scene, there's a lot of herbal liqueur coming out. One I noticed is uh, specific for Kansas City, where I'm recording, called the Pendergast, which is in honor of Tom Pendergast, the machine boss who corruptly ran the city in the 1920s. Uh, so the cocktail has bourbon, sweet vermouth, bitters, and Benedictine in it. So I don't know if they'd be too happy about that legacy, but at least you seem to be ahead of the trend on herbal liqueur being thrown into everything these days. Excellent. I'm also happy to see that mixologists are making more use of chartreuse, which is the best herbal liqueur still made by the Carthusian monks. And it is outstanding on its own, but they're also making good use of it in new cocktails. Yeah, that came up in a discussion I had a few podcast episodes ago with someone who is a mixologist and focuses on these cocktails. And the drink that came up was something called The Last of the Oaxacans that uses mezcal. So uh, the title... Yeah. So it's more about the title than the actual contents, but Chartreuse was in that and we got into the Carthusians and their vows of silence six out of the seven days a week. And are they still holding to that only two brothers know the secret recipe? Is that still in effect? That's what they say. Yes. They haven't changed that. Good. Well, I hope those two don't travel together too much and (laughs) a catastrophic railroad accident. We could be in trouble here. That would be terrible. Yeah, so be a little bit petty just to focus on the lost drink, I guess, but there we are. (laughs) Well, we have a lot more history to unpack in your recent efforts where uh, you are looking more specifically, not just the history of drinking and the church, but drinking with St. Nick in particular. You go beyond just the person of St. Nick. But I want to start with him because he's probably the most embellished historical figure out there. People are surprised that Santa Claus is very loosely based on an actual historical person. So let's start with St. Nicholas. What's his background, and how did you connect him to alcohol? Well, first of all, he, he, um, he was a great bishop, and we really don't have a great deal of solid historical information about him. We know he was a historical figure, that he was a bishop, a firm defender of orthodoxy. But even shortly after his own lifetime, there were stories about the saint that may have been true. The most famous is the idea that he saved three women, three daughters from uh, prostitution by throwing bags of gold down their chimney so that they would have money for a dowry. And this is one of the ways in which St. Nicholas is associated with gift giving. There are also a lot of later stories from the Middle Ages about him being so incensed by the heretic Arius at the Council of Nicaea that he apparently walked up and slapped him. (laughs) And for slapping a bishop, even a heretical bishop, he was exiled. So there are a lot of great stories about the saint, even before he morphed into Santa Claus. Sometimes, though, it's just hard to separate the legendary from the historical. Well, you're a professor of patristics, so you look in the ancient world uh, up to the early uh, medieval period. From what I understand of saints' legends, there's a kernel of truth somewhere out there. Maybe there's a paragraph written by a chronicler or a biographer. And then over the generations, there are these saints' legends that come out. They can be apocryphal, and they they start to grow and grow and grow. 
to the point that the saint becomes a, a stock character who's used to make a moral point in some type of writing that a monk does. Do you have a sense of St. Nicholas? How does his story develop? The story that you mentioned of him giving money and saving women for prostitution in secret. Is this connected to the earliest stories about him or does this come about later? I believe the, oh, you're, you're putting me on the spot, but I, <laughs> I believe the stories about him throwing money into the window or down the chimney was relatively close to the saint's own time period. But the story about him decking Arius did not appear until maybe a good 400 years after the death of the saint. The funny thing, though, is that they did a forensic examination of St. Nicholas's skull, which is now in Bari, Italy. The Crusaders stole it during one of their um, uh, ransackings of the Greek East, and the skull is now in Bari, Italy. They did a forensic analysis of it about 20 years ago, and they discovered that the nose on this skull of a 60-year-old man from the 4th century had been set and reset several times, which is consistent with the life of a professional boxer. <laughs> so it may have actually been plausible that a guy used to fisticuffs walked up and decked Arius. So, you know, it, who knows? <laughs> yeah, I... Have you heard theories about what that means? Because there's a bunch of things that jump into my mind. One is that maybe before his conversion experience, he was into fisticuffs, or maybe at that time period, it was simply more common to deal with things in that way. Um, there might be a layer of gloss over how our bishops, uh, centuries down the road, but maybe in the fourth century, when Christianity is barely just getting out of the underground, you had no reason for nicety when you were underground, and maybe that was still something there. That's just me spitballing, but have you heard anything of what the case could be? I haven't heard any more than what you've just provided, but it makes sense to me, uh, especially for the Greeks. They were very athletic. They practiced boxing and wrestling as a part of just, you know, the gymnasium. It was part of the, the normal formation of, of a young man, so... And not unlike what a lot of Catholic parochial schools were doing in the early 20th century. They they taught boxing. You know, the parish priest taught boxing to the kids. Um, it was a way of building character and knowing how to defend yourself. Or priests in Mexico that get involved in luchador or lucha libre activities, too, to fund their church. So there you go. The story goes on. Right. <laughs> okay, so he was alive in the 4th century if he would have been around the Council of Nicaea in 330. I thought 5th century, but my numbers were probably wrong. Is that pretty well attested that he was bishop in the 4th century? I believe so, yes. And this was in the city of uh, Smyrna in western Turkey? Correct. Okay. Huh. Where did the Crusaders get his skull from? Was Was the church where his skull was located in Smyrna, or was it moved to Constantinople? And when the Crusaders went to ransack it in the Fourth Crusade, they took it then, or was it some other place? You know, I didn't research that deeply, so I don't know the answer. I'd always just assumed it was Constantinople, because that was the major sacking of that region. So, yeah, I, I just assumed Constantinople, but it may have been elsewhere. Right. That makes sense that the, the relics would flow upwards like that to the capital. Right. Well, yeah. Let, so that's uh, a bit of the story about St. Nicholas and 
yeah, a lot of it has to be, well, guesswork and stripping away truth from legend. So let's get into the cocktail that you build around him and what inspired you for the particular ingredients, uh, whether stories from his life or attributes of his character that you thought should find its way into a drink. Well, we did sort of have fun with his association of being a somewhat violent defender of the faith. And so one of my friends, Peter Kwasniewski, came up with a drink entitled Anathema Sip, S-I-P instead of S-I-T, which uh, probably is only funny to about a dozen theologians, but we thought it was hilarious. (laughs) Um, We also, um, the great thing about St. Nicholas is that he is an enormously popular saint, not just as Santa Claus, but as a patron for various countries, causes, and groups. I try to tally this up, but I honestly believe that next to the Blessed Virgin Mary, he has the most patronages of any saint on the books. He's beat beat only by the Mother of God. He's the patron saint of Russia, of Greece, of sailors, of this, of that. I mean, the, the list just goes on and on. And that gives us a wide array of options for thinking of drink choices. Yeah, I'd like to dig into that. So beyond his historical person, his life in the Catholic Church as a patron saint, could you describe that? How does that grow over time? Why is he so important over the centuries? And what are the particular things that he's patron saint of? You know, I, I don't have the list in front of me, but it's it's all over the place. And it was actually largely in the Eastern Church. The Greek Orthodox really love St. Nicholas. It is St. Nicholas the Wonder Worker. And his legend and his prowess just grew and grew over time. So like I mentioned, he became the patron saint of a lot of Orthodox countries, such as Greece and Russia. He is also invoked a lot with anyone who has anything to do with water or with trade involving water. So sailors, navies, uh, navies around the world, not just the Greek and Russian Navy, but I think the Argentine Navy invokes St. Nicholas. He just became a very popular saint for sailors and, and Navy personnel. And then uh, traders as well, because merchants would use ports. And so then he became the patron saint of various kinds of uh, uh, merchants and businessmen. So he just kind of grew and grew in stature. And the title of the cocktail, Anathema Sip, that definitely went over my head. So what would the original Latin phrase refer to? So Anathema Sit was uh, is a line borrowed from St. Paul that basically says, let him be excommunicated. And that was the first time it was used at an ecumenical council was Nicaea, when they excommunicated Arius for not believing that Jesus Christ was true God and true man. So they would have said anathema sit to him, but we made a play on that and called it anathema sip. So do you have a sense of what um, drinking culture would have been like in the time of St. Nicholas? I'm imagining it would be mostly wine-based, which there's still a viticulture in the place where he's from, and now Izmir, Turkey. Uh, It was pretty much leveled out with the Greek-Turkish population exchange in the 20s, but now it's been coming back in recent years. Is that probably what have been around uh, during the time of St. Nicholas? 
My guess is yes. If not that particular culture, then something similar to it. The Greeks would have uh, had lots of wine. It would have been mostly sweet wine, and it would have been cut with water. It was considered de classe to have wine that was undiluted. That was called uh, mirum. We get the word mir as in like mere Christianity, meaning pure, from this uh, word. But to drink mirum meant you were kind of like a wino, that you were just drinking to get drunk. So cultured Greeks and Romans would have uh, diluted their wine before drinking it. Hey, everyone. Scott here. We're going to take a very short break for a word from our sponsors. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Why do you think he was so associated in the Orthodox Church? Is that because he was part of uh, the Greek-speaking world and it organically spread from there? Or was there a theological reason or something else? You know, I don't know. And it's, you know, it's funny that in both the East and the West, some of the most popular saints in terms of folk popularity are the saints that have the least historical, uh, or or maybe I should say the thinnest historical biography. Catherine of Alexandria is another great, great saint revered in both East and West. And we know next to nothing about her historical existence. We do know more about St. Nicholas, but it does seem that his record is relatively thin in comparison to other great Greek figures like St. John Chrysostom or Gregory Nazianzus. You know, these, these great figures we know a lot about. And yet it's, it's the unknown Nicholas who becomes so popular. Yeah, I wonder why that is. Do you think it's because when there's so little about them, we can create stories, we can project onto them whatever it is we want to project and uh, semi-factual or completely fictional stories about what they do are inspiring, even if they're made up by a monk with an overactive imagination. I I think there may be a grain of truth to that. Absolutely. I mean, to put it cynically, we're just sort of projecting our own uh, wishes or aspirations onto a relatively unknown saint. But I think there's a more charitable way of looking at it as well, is that the, the sort of blank uh, canvas uh, allows our imagination and our hopes to, to flourish in a particular way. Yeah, that's a problem with you study history long enough. It's hard not to think of everything in the most cynical way possible. And yeah, the, that's right. 
it's hard to turn off that deconstructive switch and then you become intolerable to everyone around you. Yeah. Well, actually St. Nicholas was whatever. So yeah, exactly. And, and I, I absolutely respect sorting through the wheat and the chaff and getting to the historical truth. But on the other hand, just because I respect that methodology doesn't mean I can't also respect folk traditions for a different reason. Right. You know, Chesterton has the great line that um, he would rather believe in old wives' tales than old maids' facts. And I think there's truth to that when it comes to the stories of the saints. Well, I'd like to look at uh, some of the other cocktails that you put together and get your uh, reasoning behind them and why you did them the way you did. One is the White Lady for the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. I'm very excited about this cocktail. We did have a version of it in our original book, Drinking with the Saints, but a priest friend of mine wrote to me after the book came out and he said, I tried your White Lady and it was okay, but it, it wasn't the best version there is. And I knew there were several versions of the White Lady out out there, but he sent me the version that he had been using, which he had gotten from a cocktail book from the 1960s, and it is absolutely phenomenal. It, it could quite possibly be, no, I, I, it, is, it is the best cocktail of the entire book. It takes a little more effort to make because you have to beat some egg white before uh, mixing it into the drink. But it is so worth the effort. It is a well-balanced, delicious drink. What's in the cocktail? So there's egg white. And let me think. There is Cointreau, gin, vodka, and lemon juice. And it is it packs a punch, but it is really, really smooth and delicious. Okay, I'll definitely have to put that in the show notes. Uh, I forget what I listed out from our last discussion. There was some, there was another cocktail that really sprung to your mind that um, in, invoked the spirit of the book, and it sounds like this one does too. Um, but I'm curious why you uh, connected this one to the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. Is it because of just the name of the drink, or was there something else too? That's the main reason, because the Immaculate Conception celebrates the all-white purity of the Blessed Virgin Mary, even from her conception. And so the white ladies seem to be the appropriate choice. And uh, historically, how would, when in the year would this feast be celebrated, and how would it typically be celebrated from the beginning of the time when it's celebrated in the ancient period, in the medieval period, and on up? Well, December 8th is the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, and it was celebrated in both the Catholic and Orthodox world long before uh, the doctrine was formally defined, which wasn't until the, the 19th century. Um, in the East, it was called the Conception of St. Anne, meaning when St. Anne, the Blessed Virgin Mary's mother, conceived her in the womb. Um, the West used the title of the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin, but essentially we are referring to the same thing. And it was a big feast day. It's, it's not the biggest Marian feast day. The, her assumption into heaven on August 15th is the biggest feast day. But it was still a, a day where you would abstain from servile labor. You'd have a big feast. Of course, you'd go to mass in the morning. So it was a day of uh, great uh, celebration. 
Another thing that you do is um, go through the advent calendar. So do you have a drink for every single day on the advent calendar? No, I'm, I'm afraid I do have a drink <laughs> every day on the advent. So Can't we complain. Call it the wet, we call it the wet advent calendar. <laughs> and from December 1st to the, December 24th, we got you covered. It might be hard for you to see, do a sequel in the future focusing on the Lenten calendar. Um, <laughs> the drinks would be a little bit more boring. Although I did read That's an article of somebody who only consumed beer, but he had um, some monastic argument that he wasn't just, you know, knocking back Coors Light all the time, but it was a much more of a caloric restriction. And he had a historically justified argument. Uh, sorry for this tangent. We'll get back to the advent calendar, but it sounds like you've heard of this uh, story. Oh, absolutely. And actually, there is a tradition of drinking during Lent, and it's not to get drunk, Doppelbach beer, which is from Munich, Germany, was invented specifically for the season of Lent. It, it contained extra calories and vitamins to compensate for the rigors of the Lenten fast. And according to the story, the Polaner monks would only drink this beer and some water during Lent. So this fellow who was not Catholic, he was an evangelical Christian, about 10 years ago, decided to give this a shot. He was a home brewer, and so he designed a Doppelbach, and he tried it, and he drank nothing but beer for Lent. He lost, uh, I, think he wa I think it was 30 pounds. He said he never got buzzed, but he had this tremendous, tremendous uh, spiritual clarity throughout the entire season of Lent, and he gained this uh, respect for the discipline of the monks and what they were doing. Yeah, it's something that sounds like you're being a glutton, but for those who actually did it, I'm sure you would you would feel a hollowness of not consuming any food after a while. And for the monks who did it, they would have cooked it up for the spirit of Lent, I'm guessing. How did you describe that sense that it was uh, living during a period of poverty and abstaining from richer foods? And did, did he get into that aspect of it? A little bit. It was, I think he spoke more of sort of the communal effort of the monks and the, how did he put it, the tunnel of clarity that he felt as a result of this particular fast. Well, I'd like to hear about how you constructed the Advent calendar and what are notable drinks that appear on that. I constructed it simply by seeing who were the saints on each of these days of December. And uh, December 8th has the Immaculate Conception, so we got the White Lady for that one. December 6th is St. Nicholas, and we have a a number of drink suggestions uh, for his feast day. And yeah, we just uh, looked at the calendar, saw the saint and assigned a drink. Hmm. Which ones uh, really stick out to you uh, along with this, alongside the ones we already discussed? Well, you spoke of Mezcal and in the United States, December 12th is the feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And so we have a couple of nice Mezcal recipes on her feast day as it turns out, the, um, you know, the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe appeared on the tilma of St. Juan Diego. A tilma was kind of an Aztec poncho. And a tilma and mezcal are actually made from the same blue agave plant. One is made from the fiber and the other is made from the pulp. So when you have mezcal, you're actually drinking something that was made from the same thing on which the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe appears. Hmm. Okay, yeah, that's that fits in well. So Mescal fits into the calendar. Definitely a fan of that. 
Uh, other notable drinks and dates that pop up moving along the advent calendar? Well, it was fun for me to learn about a couple of new saints that I hadn't heard of before. There was an Eastern saint called St. Spiridion, who um, led a very remarkable life and was associated with um, with cl- clay jugs because he used the image of of a clay pot for the Trinity. And so we found a couple of drink recipes that involve a clay jar. Um, one of them, oh, now it's just escaping me. It's... It's a drink in Mexico, and it's actually more popular than a margarita. A margarita is kind of more of a Southern Californian thing than an authentic Mexican cocktail. And the number one cocktail in Mexico is the one that we actually assigned for St. Spiridion because it comes in a small clay jar. And I'm drawing a blank on its name. It's not pulque, is it? No, it's actually the Spanish word for a small clay jar. And I just can't remember it. Okay. Um, it's the the mixture of uh, beer and the tomato juice. Um, I forget. No, uh, it's okay. a Michel, Michelada or Michelada, something like that. Michelada, yeah. It begins with a C, I'm sure, but drawing a blank. Yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. I'll have, to, I'll have to look this up later. Some brain cells were destroyed in the course of researching this. <laughs> yeah, it was worthwhile. So we have, right. we have trillions of neurons. So if you have to sacrifice a few, I, I, I think it's worth it. That's right. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Uh, Spiridion is where, where was he? Or do, did you dig up any uh, biographical information about him? Oh yeah. Um, and I, I don't have uh, the page open right now, but he was, I think he was one of the saints from uh, Cyprus who was a gentle soul who um, suffered torture during the persecutions and then lived into the age of peace and became a very wise uh, bishop. Who are other uh, people that you learned about in the course of this research that you hadn't heard of before? Uh, Well, I sort of got reacquainted with uh, Mother Cabrini. We have her listed, I think, on December 23rd. And she's a remarkable figure who did a a great deal of good for the United States as basically a missionary for Italian immigrants here. And uh, she did a lot of good of man- in Manhattan in particular. So that was an easy one. We assigned her the Manhattan cocktail, cocktail excuse me. Yeah, definitely. Uh, getting into the uh, 12 days proper of Christmas, I'm, I'm guessing there would have been points where you defaulted to uh, connecting them with different gifts that appear in the song. Is that correct? Well, what we've done is actually pro- applied or created two different chapters for the 12 days of Christmas. <clears throat> Excuse me. The, uh, the first follows the calendar. So, you know, St. Stephen, December 27th is St. John. We have drinks assigned for each of those 12 days between Christmas and Epiphany, which is January 6th. But then we added a special chapter, which is a special drink for each of the verses of the 12 days of Christmas song, you know, the partridge in the pear tree to turtle doves. So we have special drinks for each of the images of, of the, of the song. So we have a drink partridge in a pear tree. We have a drink for the two turtle doves. 
the three French hens and so on and so forth, all the way through to the, what is it? The Lord's a leaping at the very end. There was an episode of The Office where character Andy actually gets all of the things in the song as a gift. And he says it ends up being about 40 or 50 birds when you get down to That's it. Right. Uh, so how was that process when you're trying to match things up with the different gifts? Ours was a much gentler process and we did not harm, you know, Aaron, the secretary with violent swans yeah. <laughs> in the course of the research. So, no, it was a, a, it was a lot better. As a matter of fact, we came up short, I think, uh, for about for two or three drinks. We couldn't find a really good drink for 10 Lords of Leaping and we could not find a good drink for the three French hens. Even though there were a couple of cocktails that had that name, they weren't they weren't just the right fit. So what we did was we teamed up with Balcones Distilling here in Waco. Balcones makes world famous uh, whiskey, and they've only been doing so for a few years, and but they're absolutely phenomenal. And they've got a mixologist, and so I contacted him and and asked him, can you can you make some cocktails for us? based on these criteria and what he produced was just outstanding. So we have really good entries for the three French hens and the 10 Lords leaping. What did he come up with? He came up with for the three French hens, a drink involving their rumble, which is kind of like their rum, but it's, it's not made from sugarcane. It's made from figs, and wild honey and um, terminado brown sugar. So it's already, Rumble is already a great, great uh, drink. But then he added, I think it was, I think it was egg white and an ammonian syrup to create the three French hens. And it's, it's really good. For the uh, 10 Lords of Leaping, he used Texas fire brimstone, which is one of their smokier offerings. And it's a really sort of macho, manly kind of drink to have. So it fits perfectly with the Lord's a Leaping theme. If I have to experiment, I think that sounds like uh, the be the best edge case thing to go after. So overall, as you're doing this, as you're sampling the different drinks, something you mentioned the last time we were talking, when you came away from Drinking with the Saints, you talked about understanding the history of the church and how the how different holidays are conceived of, and that gave you a different perspective on that. Did you come away with any insights in doing the research for this book and the cocktails and seeing how they connect with the liturgical calendar and the lives of saints? I did, and I definitely walked away with the impression <clears throat> that earlier generations of Christians knew how to celebrate Christmas much better than we do. <laughs> because now, in a sense— we uh, we sort of blow things bef even before the big day. You know, we have the sort of raucous office parties during December, or we do this sort of nonstop shopping binge between Thanksgiving and Christmas. That we uh, we have this sort of frenetic um, displacement of energy before Christmas, and then Christmas comes and we celebrate it, and then we go back to work. And then maybe we celebrate again for New Year's Day, and then we go back to work. Whereas with the older model, there was re restraint all throughout Advent. There was drinking during Advent, but it was restrained. You were still working, you were getting things done, you were preparing for Christmas. 
And then during Christmas, it worked during the whole 12 days of Christmas. It was 12 days of abstaining from manual labor. They got all the firewood chopped and, and all the pigs slaughtered and everything else before Christmas time so that they would have this block of peace and rest and leisure. And that just strikes me as so much more civilized. Yeah, from what I understand historically, the 20th and 21st centuries are very different in America from how historically Christmas was practiced and even how it is in other parts of the world. Uh, in Mexico, for example, there is the celebration of Epiphany on January 6th, and then they still celebrate in February Candlemas, which I forget how it connects to um, the other holidays. But in Victorian England, if there were any decorations, they would be put up, I think, at the very earliest, December 25th, and would be up till early February, till Candlemas. You probably know better than I do how that works. How does that all connect together? No, you're absolutely right. Candlemas is the feast of the purification of the Blessed Virgin Mary, which is celebrated on February 2nd, because that is exactly 40 days after the birth of Jesus, which is what St. Luke tells us is the time that Mary went to the temple, both to present her son and to be ritually purified. So Candlemas is, uh, in, according to many, is the official end of the Christmas season, 40 days after Christmas Day. And you're right about the decorations. Again, we've got things so, so different. You start seeing Christmas trees in late November uh, in the United States, whereas only 100 years ago, nobody put their Christmas tree up until December 24th. You decorated the tree on Christmas Eve. Uh, if you may recall, this is one of the elements of the plot of the Nutcracker. And then that stayed up for probably at least the 12 days of Christmas. So you you celebrated the Christmas tree and you celebrated around the Christmas tree during the 12 days of Christmas. And then probably around Epiphany, you would take it down. But now you see Christmas trees in the dumpster on December 26. Hey everyone, Scott here. One more brief word from our sponsors. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Calitrin. Calitrin is a weight loss supplement made from collagen protein and digestive enzymes. Calitrin is designed to assist the body in repairing and rebuilding lean muscle using top quality ingredients. The reason it contains collagen, which is the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the body, is because it decreases as we age. Because Calitrin rebuilds this critical protein, it promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. I tried it for a month, slept great, felt more energetic, and noticeably shed weight that was gained over the holidays. Calitrin has an 86% success rate with their 90-day supply. Here are some customer testimonials. Marie in Pennsylvania lost 117 pounds with Calitrin. Ron in Texas lost 35 pounds. And Diane not only lost weight, but found relief from arthritis. 
This week, you can take advantage of their President's Day sale. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free, plus free shipping. Ordering is extremely easy. Just text the word UNPLUGGED to 30605, and you'll get a link to the special offer. Text the word UNPLUGGED to 30605. Again, text UNPLUGGED to 30605. Right. This is something that historically has caused terrible calamity. And I think this is something that all parts of society could get to, religious or not, because what's happened is that January is, it's a hangover of a month where (laughs) it's cold, everything that's nice and cheerful and the parties are all over. There's nothing outside. It's bleak. It's the darkest month of the year. There's no celebration to be had. So it's turned into the Christmas Carol before Ebenezer Scrooge gets visited and Bob Cratchit's office is cold and bleak. That's what January is. So true. I don't know if you have a Candlemas cocktail anywhere uh, tucked in, but if there's a way to kind of keep the spirit going into February, maybe that would uh, link things into the historical practice of Christmas. Oh, absolutely. And and we do not have a a holiday drink for every day of, of January, but we do have an entry on Candlemas as the last entry of the book. So there is a way of keeping alive that holiday merriment, at least until February 2nd. Right. And then by that point, things sort of move along with the year. So what's in the Candlemas drink? Yeah, by that point, yeah, you need to let go at that point. Yeah. We had a couple things for we had a couple things for Candlemas. Um The easiest one was something called the Roman candle, and it's a flaming drink. It's a very minty drink made with uh, creme de menthe. But Candlemas was called Candlemas because it was short for Candles Mass. There was a mass and a candlelight procession and a blessing of candles that would take place on this day. So we figured it was appropriate to have a flaming drink for February 2nd. Yeah. And again, in Mexico and I would imagine other parts of Latin America and probably in other places as well, they celebrate this in February. So you can participate and have the drink as well. Absolutely. Well, we uh, alluded to uh, Lent earlier uh, and thanks for discussing all these things, Michael. Uh, Do you have ideas in the future of other themes that you could focus drinks around if you want to continue this book series? Well, one book that I am working on is uh, Drinking with Your Patron Saints. So far, I've organized the saints around their calendar day, but it would be fun to think of the saints in terms of the various causes and groups that they patronize. And so you could, as a fireman, know which saint to toast to, like uh, the patron of firemen is St. Florian. And so you would have a drink anytime you got together with your your co-workers. Uh, so, So that's something that's in the works. Well, this is the most hands-on application of patristics I think I've ever heard of. I don't know. It, <laughs> I don't know if Baylor has a hotel and restaurant management uh, department, but if you could cross-list a master's course of yours with mixology, you might really be onto something. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I'll check with the administration. <laughs> All right. Well, the book is Drinking with St. Nick, Christmas Cocktails for Sinners and Saints. Michael, thank you for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right. Well, that was the episode for today. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. First of all, I'd like to thank the Knowlton's Rangers, and especially our spy masters, Baron Fraser, Carl from Norway, Chris from Maine, Moondoggy from Ohio, and Rick Knowlton, and I'll explain what that means in a second. If you want to support the show and help me keep producing this content, there are four easy ways for you to do it. One, subscribe to the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you want to do that, you can go to historyunpluggedpodcast.com and there you'll find instructions. 
Two, join our Facebook group, which you can find if you just search for History Unplugged. And please like and share posts that I put up about new episodes. Three, submit a question to me so that I can answer it on air. You can email me at info at historyonthenet.com or leave a voicemail. And again, go to historyunpluggedpodcast.com and you'll find instructions. Lastly, and I think this one is the best, is to become one of the Knowlton's Rangers. The Knowlton's Rangers were an elite reconnaissance and espionage detachment of the Continental Army in the Revolutionary War, but it's also the name of the History Unplugged membership program. Learn how to join by going to patreon.com slash unplugged. So here's what you get if you become one of the Knowlton's Rangers. If you join at the level of Scout, you can get early access to new podcast episodes, along with enjoying absolutely every single episode of the History Unplugged podcast ad-free, all 270 and counting episodes. If you join at the level of Intelligence Officer, you can also get access to premium episodes, like a multi-part series on the life of Audie Murphy, the most decorated combat soldier in World War II, or the 10-part series Ottoman Lives, a series that looks at the cast of characters that made up the Ottoman Empire, such as the Sultan, the Eunuch, the Harem Servant Girl, and the Soldier. And finally, if you join at the level of Spymaster, you get all the same stuff as the Scouts and Intelligence Officers, but you also get a shout-out to you and or your business at the end of each episode, a three-pack of hardcover history books, plus you will be put at the very front of the line for me to answer your question about history, and I can guarantee I will dedicate an episode that's about an hour long or so to your question. Sign up at patreon.com slash unplugged. Again, that's patreon.com slash unplugged. Anyway, those are the ways you can help out the show. Thank you so much for your support. Thanks for listening to the History Unplugged podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show to get your daily dose of all things history-related from ancient Greece to the Cold War. We'll see you next time at the History Unplugged podcast. 